This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Todd Sampson is, amongst other things, an adventurer, award-winning documentary maker, ex-ad agency CEO, co-creator of Earth Hour, television presenter of a number of Australia's most critically acclaimed and highest-rating shows, and a board director of both Qantas and Fairfax. When I first met Todd 17 years ago, he had just returned from climbing Everest solo. So, mate, I have to ask for all of us underachievers out there, have you ever turned your mind to something that hasn't worked out? Are you actually? Uh, I'm I was actually asking you that. I was really taken by your intro. You, you were loving it. To, your no, head not, was swelling. Well, not in front the of whole part, <laughs> but the point of this the show. <laughs> and I didn't realize you were actually coming to me. Yeah. Um, I, I've turned my mind to lots of things that I haven't been able to see. That I wanted to be a competitive runner. I, I couldn't do that. I didn't have the uh, strength or mental fortitude uh, to do that. In my shows, I've failed many times. I've attempted to do things that just didn't work out. And uh, that's often the highlight for a lot of people, the things that I don't succeed at. Uh, I've, on the wire walk and readers on my brain, I fell the first time and everyone tried to call it off and I ended up getting back on and giving it a go. So yeah, I've failed probably... Percentage-wise, more things than I've succeeded at. So but, no, no, don't take this wrong. Yes, I, I am bloody thrilled because as a friend, <laughs> uh, you, I, I fire you, you. You make me feel inspired and inferior in equal parts. Yeah, but you know me, Nigel. <laughs> you know me, so you know. Uh, this is a, this is one of the strange things that you've known me for eighteen years. I yeah. met you. You are one of the most influential people in my my life for many decisions I've made in my life, and it is funny that uh, because of some of the shows, they depict me as this sort of alpha male, and yeah. which. I'm not, you know, I'm more of an introvert, more of a, a solo person. I don't have a lot of friends. I don't go out to events. I don't do any of that stuff. But in the shows, the shows are are part inspirational and they're part of a journey, a real yeah. journey to see someone try something that they don't think they could do. Fascinating. You, because of your profile, you do hundreds of interviews. I mean, you've come from doing two this morning. Um we want to make Five of My Life slightly different. So I'd be interested in, in hearing how the process of making your choices made you feel joyous, sad, grateful, nostalgic, irritated, or, or, or none of the above. Yeah, well, the first thing is, is uh, I was surprised by effort. Because uh, most interviews are about your, about your show. or I, I tend not to do anything in the public unless it's linked to something that I'm promoting. I think people see enough of me and hear enough of me. So I'm not, I'm not going around on the publicity trail for the sake of publicity. It normally has an end goal, which is a, a launch of a show. But in this case, that's not what we're doing. Uh, so when you sent the... I, I love the concept, but I didn't realize it would take so much effort. And so you actually have to think about it. So I chose to not overthink it. Right. I literally, I opened up my notes on my phone 
And I wrote very quickly what exactly came top of mind. Some could say subconsciously, you know, I chose subconsciously and I just put him down and I did the overnight test. And in the overnight test, the only thing I changed was the movie. The one that you told me that you've chosen was Out of Africa, the Mm -hmm. 1985 uh, Streep and Redford film. Is that still your choice? That's still my choice. It's not a happy story. No, it's not a happy story. But I was 15 years old uh, when I saw that. And I think inside I'm a a true romantic, you know, someone who loves love stories. I've always loved love stories. My wife makes fun of me because she'd rather kill herself than go to a love story. Uh, But I go. I take my kids. Uh, and I saw that when I was 15 and I, I, I fell in love with the character, his character, but more importantly, I fell in love with Africa and that would change my life forever because I then eventually in my life, my winding journey took me to Africa when Nelson Mandela was, when Nelson Mandela got into power in 1995, I packed up and moved to Cape Town. I had always... It, this is from Canada? From Canada. And you know that, that, that saying, you know, when you get the dust of Africa in your shoes, you can never get it out? I have and had the dust of Africa in my shoes. And I've been there, uh, I lived there for six years. I, during that revolution of a change of power from a white oppressive government to the current government that it has, I did part university there. I did an MBA there at one of their best universities, which was an excellent school. And it was momentous time and that movie and even the song in that movie right so that the lead song i learned how to play on the piano i don't play the piano but i wow. learned that one song because it's so much feeling for me those those hills and the the landscape and the you know all of it meant something wow and, and do you do you re-watch the film or? i have yeah i well i've been one of my missions and and i say this knowing that not everyone can afford to go to africa clearly and uh, but if you can and you choose not to that is an unbelievable oversight right? because it's where we've come from. And so I make it such a mission. I go back with my kids. My kids have been to Africa already. They've been to Africa four times. Uh, they've been where this movie was filmed, not because of that, but because we were adventuring and it was in that area. So I wanted to go to go see it. But I, I see it as it's if there was a spiritual home, pardon the phrase, yeah. that is definitely my spiritual home. And I want it to be part of my kids' lives. Wow. And, and the, the character you identify with is the Redford one, not the Streep one. Yeah, the Redford one. So the Streep story, as in Blixen, yes. the, from the book, that's a, a devastatingly sad hmm. uh, story. And, and I, when I was looking uh, through your choices and researching them, it, she had to deal with enormous challenges hmm. and change in her life uh, externally. And, and your, your book choice is about how, how all of us can better deal with challenges in our in our life. You, you chose Change Your Thinking by Sarah Edelman. Do you want mm. to tell us a little bit about that? I guess the premise of most of the shows I've made, and, uh, and uh, Body Hack specifically, is, that, is about human potential on some level, sometimes overt, sometimes less overt. And uh, I, b- I believe, I work to the 30% rule, which is uh, if that we can never bring ourselves physically to failure. Failures in your mind. And athletes know this. And so they call it the 30%. So when you hit the wall, you think you're done, you're finished, you've hit the wall, you still got 30% to go. Because the thing that limits you, the self-limiting factor in our lives is our mind. Our mind tells us it's time to stop. If you look at the recently the marathon running, where they tried to get an under two hour, 
record. No one's ever done yeah. it on the planet. And it's a under, 209, I think. Yeah. yeah. So they wanted to get under two. So flat track, best conditions, best runners, African runners on the planet, fully trained, focused on creating history. Yeah. They run all out. They get just over two hours. They can't break it. But when he finishes, he does a little jog, like to cool down. Yeah. He did a little jog to cool down. Yeah. How do you do that? If I put a lion on that track, he would sprint at unbelievable speed. Because even him, a professional athlete running at full, full on capacity, fully trained, cannot bring himself to that level. So I believe the limiting factor is the mind. Right. And self-awareness and tools and techniques can help you with that. Can help you not necessarily go 30, but maybe 10% further in your life or in your physical activities. And after all the work I've done on the brain over six years in three continents, I've concluded, my own conclusion is that cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the best tools to do that. And Sarah wrote a book dedicated to that, yeah. which is accessible to everyone. And, and have you always been uh, a self-improver? Or is it something you came to in your 30s or your 40s? Or, or did you, when you left Canada to go to Africa, think, right, I'm going to you know, study to be the best? And More insecure overachieving. More that, not not someone who thinks, I don't, I never start from the premise of I can do it. I start, even with Everest, I don't start from the premise of I can do it. I start from the premise of I think I can do it. Yeah. And it's more out of a combination of an adventure spirit and an insecure kind of personality. That combination is what's driven me. So no, I've, it's always been self-medicating. Right. It's not been self-improvement in many ways. Yeah, I, I remember something you said to me, uh, gosh, uh, 16 or so years ago where you go the trouble with climbing Everest Nigel is you've got to come back down mm. and if you are uh, if, if you achieve certain peaks it, it doesn't matter it could be commercial success or it could be climbing the world's highest mountain mm. or else uh, I see on your website beautiful wonderful joyous picture of you standing on top of uh, Everest I've still got the jacket you gave me <laughs> my kids wear it to water photo um, uh, but you've got to come down yes you're not in that moment you know, that's you on top of the world's highest mountain having climbed it alone. Bloody hell. But then, you you know, Naomi might say, could you take the recycling out, mate? And, that <laughs> and, is, and, yeah. and we were working together at that around that time, you know, and, and it is that. I mean, Everest is... Everest is a symbol of achievement for many people, but for mountaineers, it's it's kind of just an exercise in resilience. It's not yes. a, it's not a highly skilled climb. It doesn't require uh, you know a huge amount of mountaineering skill. But the thing with all climbs is when I remember that day when I got to the summit of Everest, it was the twenty third of May uh, two thousand and one, and I remember I'd, I'd lost so much weight, 16 kilos or 17 kilos, whatever it was. I hadn't eaten in three days. I was completely destroyed. Yeah. And I got up there and I remember I stood there. I was alone for that moment and I just started crying and I started crying and I was, I was saying to myself, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I remember I had this really weird moment where I thought, who am I thanking? Yeah. Because I'm not a religious person. So who am I thanking? Sure. Is it just thankfulness? And then that lasts for about 30 seconds. And then you have to get down. Most people die on the way down. So then it's down. And then I remember I literally got back and I was selling toilet paper in an advertising agency. <laughs> and the thing I always find sort of surprising when, when on the very rare occasions I've achieved anything notable is you walk down the street and people aren't throwing their hats in the air going, hurrah, it's him. <laughs> they, they, no, one, no one cares. No, you no you one think cares. people think about you, but they don't. I mean, you, you know. 
Yeah, but however, I would say that climbing something like Everest, because it means so much to other people, it is it is a, a, a change point in your life. Uh, because when people know that of you, they will pass judgment because it's like a massive tattoo that you now have on your body that if you if you tell someone, like in America, if you tell someone I've climbed Mount Everest, they immediately go, ooh, you know, first of all, if you tell a woman, most of them look at you and go, idiot. But if you tell someone in, if you tell someone in, uh, uh, in, in America, they'll be like, oh, when did you do it? How did you do it? And normally this kind of take you down a notch thing, they'll ask, did you do it with oxygen? As if that's less, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. park that. But in Australia, in Australia, it's interesting because if, if you, someone, if you told someone you climbed Everest, their immediately response to you is dickhead. No, no, why is that? Why is that? Tall poppy. So, ah, okay, right, uh, right. People right. don't talk about themselves, and that's good. That's what I love about it. it's egalitarian. Sure. Okay, they don't. You know, they might be interested, but if you at all are boastful over an achievement, no matter how grand that achievement may be in their eyes, yeah, they're just going to take you down to level ground. The book that you lent me, brilliant, either into thin air or something. There was some idiotic American socialite who did it like in a wheelchair or, or got carried up by a PA or something. And it, it's sort of, I, 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 I'm sure she's lovely, but I, I hated her for demeaning the real achievement. Mm. Well, <laughs> it was funny because when I was on Everest, it was a brilliant moment. Uh, Eric, the blind climber, did it. He climbed right. it. Right. And he was amazing. Although he slowed the mountain unbelievably Believably, because mm. he had 30 Sherpas, and every time he moved, the mountain shut down. So you kind of climbed around Eric. So I had summoned it before him, <laughs> yeah. and then uh, when I got down, I was on the radio, listening to the radio while they were talking about him getting up, and he had his base camp support, and he was going to the summit, and when he got to the summit, it was one of the most, one of the moments you wish you could, you know, wind back, yeah. and the base camp guy says, he said, I've made it, I've done it, and the base camp guy says, how does it look? <laughs> and it was like, you could just, you could just hear all the clicks of all the Radios all around base camp just letting go. And everyone's thinking, oh, did he just ask that? And Eric joked about it yeah, after yeah, he yeah. said it. It was quite funny, but uh, yeah. Uh, just to clarify around climbing Everest alone, no one climbs Everest alone. If you climb during the season, then you climb with other people. In fact, I, I at one stage I climbed with Pember Dorje Sherpa, who saved my life on Everest uh, on one of my attempts, the first attempt on that trip. But mate, you said that he saved your life. What, what happened? Uh, so I was attempting to go to 8,000 meters. So you have to stage from 8,000 meters, which is uh, uh, Camp 4 on so Everest. To do acclimatize for the altitude. And- uh, quick. It's you no know, acclimatizing at 8,000. You're dying the right. whole time. So uh, okay. no, no, in no, and out. There's right. In and out. Up, down. Yeah. But you have to get there and you have to spend a little bit of time there. Uh, so I was climbing across the Lhotse phase, which is you need to get across to get to yep. to the camp four. And everyone was climbing the opposite way. All the Sherpas were going the other way. And I was like, oh, this this is potentially not good and and lost in translation. So I get on to camp four and it's a full raging storm, blizzard. Right. Just white out. I'm tr- struggling to get a tent and get a tent up and, and try because I knew I'd have to stay overnight, which is a bad thing at 8,000 meters. Uh, I also knew I'd have to go back down uh, uh, that I wouldn't be able to go for an attempt because of the storm. So I'm trying to get things out and I see this red and blue jacket in the white of the storm and it's a Sherpa and he's stumbling and he's got like 60 kilos on his back carrying Klein's gear. And uh, he comes up to me and, and we sort of talk bad language and uh, together and uh, we just try to set a tent up and we both get inside and we didn't think, we didn't know if we'd make it through the night because a lot, a lot of people can survive two nights at 8,000. And uh, <laughs> we get inside the tent and he won't put oxygen on because the Sherpas do not want to put oxygen on because if they use it once, then they're dependent on it. And their yeah, body yeah. starts to adjust to the oxygen. I was like, there's no possible way we'd make it through the night without oxygen. And he would definitely either lose his fingers, toes or be dead. So I said, oh, I'll put it on. I'll just put on a little 
I put it on about three. It was meant to be one. I put on him, we get in spoons together because yeah. of the cold. We had one sleeping bag between us. And then I woke up choking because the mask, I would, I'd run out of air and the mask had frozen onto my face. And then I went to undo the tent only to realize that we had been covered. Ah, <laughs> buried overnight. Because, right. <laughs> but luckily, we had oxygen on, and we were buried in a dome, right. so it didn't quite completely engulf us or crush down on us. It kind of blew that side and blew up on the other side. So Sherpas don't like being buried, uh, and they didn't grow up like I did in Canada, going into like building yeah. igloos and stuff. They didn't do that. So he started freaking out. We radioed down, and he they asked me to leave him. I was like, I'm not going to leave him. And uh, we ended up staying more there, and then he just freaked out and said, We're going. He said, we go. I left everything, all my gear there, and he led me- Up or down? Down. Down, down, right. He led me through the storm. I could barely see him in front of me. I just saw the red, and I would never have been able to find the route. No chance. Right. Because he knew it, you know. So I followed him, and we got down. I climbed all the way down to base camp. I stayed for five days there, and then I climbed all the way back up to the summit. That was the journey. So it would not have happened without Pemba Dorje Sherpa. Was your stuff still there? Uh, Yeah, the only thing I recovered from that was my recordings, because I recorded the whole trip on tape. Wow. No video, no camera, just voice recordings. So, Which, by the way, was translated at the company that you ran and I was working for, was translated by the receptionist there Ah. during off hours, and I would walk by and she was like bawling her eyes out. Right. And I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? So I'm at that point where this (laughs) happened. This is the five of my life. More with Todd Sampson after the break. This is The Five of My Life with Nigel Marsh. So we've been talking about challenges, whether it's Karen Blixen, you know, in Africa or, you know, changing your mind with cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, Sometimes great challenges create great creativity and great art. And and your choice of song, which I I almost wish you hadn't chosen (laughs) because I hadn't heard it before Mm -hmm. and I've listened to it twice and I refuse to listen to it again because it moved me to tears uh, both times is Through the Dark by the Hilltop Hoods. Um, and the the story behind that song and the lyrics uh, just floored me. So mm. do you want to tell us why you chose yeah, that so, song? So uh, I... I'd been a kind of loose fan of Hilltop Hoods. I liked the music. I wasn't obsessed uh, with them. And uh, my crew, I film with the same crew everywhere in the world. And uh, maybe I shouldn't say his name, but my cameraman, who's been my cameraman everywhere in the for, world. For every different series? Every show he's done. Right. He shot cool. with me. Yeah, cool. he's amazing. He's an amazing person. Tough, big, strong, six foot five Australian guy. And uh, yeah, his son got, got leukemia while we were filming. He was diagnosed with leukemia. Wow. And so that so, song would really... Yeah, so it was... so. Then I knew about that, and uh, then we had just we were just about to film the wire walk, right? Which I did in redesign my brain, mm. right? So we were we were staying at a house. We'd filmed other things. We were staying at a house together, the crew, all of us together in one big room, and it, we it, they're all musicians. They all play instruments and stuff. You, and your cameraman's musician, all of them. Yeah, the, right. The, the director sings the, the the you know bass. Everyone plays music, and we were just sitting around, kind of de- de-stressing. And Toby said. Uh, I've got a song I'd like you guys to hear. And he put that song on and he started bawling. Well, yeah. He just started bawling. And we were all just men sitting there silent, listening to the words. And then I started crying and then Jeff started crying. And then, and then that song has 
had become uh, an incredibly important song for me. So the Hilltop Hoods, uh, MC Pressure, who was the writer of this, he wrote the song while his son was in the hospital being treated with chemo. Uh, and he wrote this song in many ways as an apology or as a record or to the journey of his son and why him and, and, and why he has to go through this. And uh, he then didn't want to publish it. And they forced him to publish it. They said, please. Mm. He didn't want to sing it. Uh, they made him sing it. And it's one of my favorite songs. And I believe that... And I remember once a performance artist, uh, an athlete, told me that when I was training for Everest, they said, one of the best things you can do is find songs that are emotionally strong for you if, they, if you want to be motivated. Yeah. And so that song is an emotionally strong song for me. And when I want to be motivated, even though I cry every time, I can turn that song on. And, and I think, I mean, I hope this is true from my research, that is the sun is in remission. and, and health in remission, yeah. yeah. Healthy now. The, the, I mean, it's not a particularly attractive trait that I have, but I, I project onto my kids, mm. which is awful. You go, it's got nothing to do with you, Nigel. Mm. But, but I just think, just like if I see an unfortunate homeless person or something, having kids means, well, for me, means you, you can't not empathise because you go, well, that could be Harry or that yes. could be Grace. So mm. I'm... <laughs> In tears, listening to that bloody song, thinking, "Well, that could be me talking mm. to one of my kids," and and yeah, and also it's probably the only song or one of very few on the planet that exists that's about cancer. Mm. That's a pop song. Mm. There's very very few that have been written like that. And I just warn anyone listening that it is one of the most beautiful songs you'll listen to, but it is heart wrenching. And and uh, but that's not a reason not to listen to it. And, and I tell you, in terms of you, you know, I've spoken about this before about. Uh, quality listening is if I wasn't listening to that because you had chosen it and I'm researching this show mm. it's entirely possible I mean you know losing my hearing because I'm 54 but entirely possible that I wouldn't have got you, know, you can just dismiss it as a uh, uh, as a rap song or whatever it is just mm. like my kids listen to duff 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 you know trance music or whatever and, and you go just sort of for me it was an object lesson on paying proper attention yeah. so, so I listened to the song and then then read the lyrics and then thought, oh, holy moly. So then listened to it again and got upset. You know, but, but you, you can, if you skim the world, you, you know, all these beautiful things mm. sort of pass you by. I go through phases with music. I love music. Uh, and I go through phases where I obsess about songs. Like I'll play it every day. I'll play it every day, maybe four times a day. I'll play it every time I get in my car. And that lasted for a long time, that song. And I only recently... I had I I also like because you know music you whatever however you listen to music but in my case on my on my iPhone it's it's a it's a it's the story of your life the songs you choose to download yeah are a story of your life so one cool thing to do is just random all songs yes. and just see what happens yeah, yeah yeah so literally when you spoke to me I was flying to do this I was flying to Brisbane for some work I was doing and I hit shuffle. And bam, it came up. Wow, and I yeah. went, well, there's the answer to that. Because, I mean, I love Nick Cave, and he's been a big yeah. part of my life, and I love Ben Harper, and he's been a big... Did, did you used to listen to Jack Johnson? Uh, I don't. No, I it's interesting. Of, it... He fell off a bit for me because of the similarity of the music over a period yeah. of time, but I, I don't know. Like I, I, Nick Cave is, over the last probably five, maybe eight years, has been the one I've dug into his music the most. Uh, something about him. And now with the loss of his son. I mean, maybe there's a theme going on here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his latest album with the loss of his son was just, it was devastating. I'm a massive uh, Nick, Nick K fan. So we keep 
coming back to the theme of, of challenges, and I, I can't think of a more challenging place that you have chosen. You chose Mosul in yes. Iraq, and it's not just a challenging place, but a challenging time. Mm. Uh, tell us about that, mate. So in Body Hack 2, I wanted to study, you know, the premise is again to study the human body under the extremes, you know, yep. and see how we can and what we can learn from these people that live at the extremes. Well, there is no more place, no more horrific place for the body and mind than war. Uh, I then We then got invited Literally, we were putting kind of feelers out with different militaries because I had done the French Foreign Legion the year before. Yep. And uh, the Iraqi snipers came back and said, well, we'd love to host you. Now, they have their own agenda of their own story, but that was not the story I was going to tell. I was going to tell that my own journey and with mm. them. And we uh, we sh- we packed up and got, got a specialized crew for this and we flew to Mosul and embedded with the snipers. But it is what didn't make the film. The, people, the thing that people didn't see that hit me the most. So on the way there, uh, we stopped and Mosul's destroyed. It was, you know, considered the kind of Paris of the Middle East at one stage. It was, it was a stunning, beautiful place. It's leveled. Yeah. It is, you think you're on some kind of bizarre war movie, Steven Spielberg set. The buildings are all down. All the vehicles are crushed. It's just leveled. And, but so more than 500,000 people have been displaced just in the area we were in alone. And so I went to the displacement camp. And when I got there, this young woman said uh, she wanted to see me. I was nervous. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I said, let's film it. Ask permission. She said, fine, I would like you to film it. So I sat with her, just like you and I are, kind of opposite, this close, outside, with kids running around in the displacement camp. And she was talking to me about ISIS, and I could tell she was really distraught. I could see it in her eyes, the darkness. And I said, um, where are your family? And then she says to me that her mother was uh, stoned to death in front of her Mm. by ISIS, and her father was decapitated. In mm. front of her, and her sisters, the only living relatives, were taken away and put in different places around the country. They'd never been able to find each other since then. And I remember she was, um, I wanted to hug her, mm. but I felt culturally sensitive yeah. to hugging her. And when I stood up, she came to me and she hugged me. And I remember that moment, and I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to put it in the film because it feels exploitative to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was one of the most impactful moments I had in Iraq in Mosul. Will you go back? I would love to go back. You know what? I'd love to take my kids. I'd love to take my kids to, to Mosul. Uh, the, the thing that I would say about Iraq and Iraqi people is I, I am embarrassed to say that the majority of what I knew about Iraq was from media. So most of my learning, I didn't study it at uni, so I didn't, I, my, it was from media. And... That's not what I experienced. Some of the most lovely, kind, yeah. hospitable, giving people, even these military men, you know, kind, hospitable, giving people. And it was, a, I try to get my kids as best possible because I think um, travel is education. And if you can afford to do it, then it's a good education for them. And I'd love to bring my kids there. A, do you know what it's like there now? And B, do you have hope? Uh, I have future. hope. I have hope, but uh, it'll, I do know what it's like there now. The soldiers still contact me. Uh, but, um, ISIS is a concept. It's not a unit. And that concept is not going away. Uh, And I think that we will be fighting concepts, and we are, you know, Me Too is fighting another concept, but we are fighting concepts all the time, and they're not something you can get your hands around, and it never ends. You can't kill it. Uh, And I think that 
uh, they will live. You know, one of our soldiers was shot in the head, and I remember while well, I was there, and I remember the hatred, you know, against this concept and the unbelievable desire to fight it. That doesn't go away when someone puts a white flag up no. and says, "Our army's now too small to fight you, so we quit for now." Yeah. Gosh. Now your uh, possession um, is the autobiography of Edmund Hillary. And it's quite a nice sort of closing of the loop because I can't think of anyone who embodies some of the traits that are clearly close to your heart more beautifully. I mean, his his life, I mean, researching him for this conversation, you know, I think of him as the bloke that climbed Everest and you go, well, <laughs> that's one of the things that he did. Uh, and your possession that you're going to talk to us about is, is it um, View from the Summit or another one he did, the, the autobiography? It's, it's Ed Hillary. It's his yeah, another autobiography. Another one. But, but it's a signed copy. Yeah. So, so please tell us yeah. about the book, but also the story of, of how you got a signed copy. Yeah, so I, I'd always been a fan. When I was younger, I was a fan of him because he had climbed Mount Everest. And I, as a kid, I was always like a little mini adventurer. I used to, when I was young, I'd put my backpack on and go off into the woods or into the snow or whatever it would be. I was always, so I admired adventurers that traveled the world. And I was wished I could be an adventurer, you know, like a Christopher Columbus and explore places that haven't been seen before or, or an Ed Hillary who went on one of the toughest, hardest journeys to go somewhere where no one else has been before. So I'd always admired him. And when I was young, it was because he was a mountaineer. But as I got older, I admired him because he was a beekeeper, <laughs> because he, it didn't change him. It didn't change who he was. It was, he was one of the most famous people on the planet, but he was a beekeeper. He was a down to earth, lovely, straight talking, big, strong Kiwi. That's yeah. what he was. And I love that about him. He never became a celebrity. He never became any of that. And then one day, uh, we were working together and I was going to New Zealand for work. I was doing a job with the Australian Tourism Commission and I arrived in Auckland. It was two weeks before my attempt to climb Mount Everest, right? So two yeah. weeks out. And I fly into Auckland and I remember I was speaking to the cab driver about mountaineering and he was telling me that his son was a, was a yeah. mountaineer and all that yeah. stuff and I was into the conversation with him and he mentioned Edmund Hillary and he said, you know Edmund Hillary lives in Auckland. Now, I knew he lived, I knew he was a Kiwi, I, I don't, I'm not stalking him, I didn't yeah. know exactly where he lived. So when I got out of the cab, I was staying at the Hilton Hotel, I got out of the cab and I thought, I wonder if Edmund Hillary is in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> so I go upstairs, yeah. excited, thinking yeah. maybe he is. I go upstairs and I open up the white pages and right. sure enough, in bold, Sir Edmund Hillary. Brilliant. So 22 Acacia Avenue. So <laughs> what do you do? I nervously phone him. Yeah. So his wife, June, answers the phone. And I said, look, my name is Todd Sampson. I'm about to go climb Mount Everest <laughs> in two weeks. I was wondering if I could have a word with Sir Ed. <laughs> and then over a muzzled phone, right? Yeah. I could hear her going... Ed, Ed, there's a climber on the phone. Let's have a word with you. He's got no idea who I am. I'm yeah. not on television. I haven't done yeah. anything on television at this stage. I'm a complete stranger. Yeah. So he, he gets on the phone. He introduces himself. We talk, might be two or three minutes. Then he says, if you'd like to pop around for tea, I'll be here for the next three hours. So you jump in the cab. So I call the Australian Tourism Bureau, yeah. who I'm there to meet. That's yeah. the whole purpose of the trip. Yeah. I said, look, I've just been invited for tea with Sir Edmund Hillary. Do you mind if I'm a bit late? And they were like, never mind us. Just go see him. Yeah. So I dash downstairs with the address. I give it to the cab driver. And the cab driver says, do you know who lives there? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's Edmund Hillary's house. I said, yes. And he said, can I wait out in front? I was like, no, mate. There's enough stalking going on here. So I, I get in the house. June answers the door. I'm nervous. She puts a big smile on her face, hand on my shoulder, and she says, Ed's in the kitchen. And I go into the kitchen, and I don't know how else to describe it. 
You know how sometimes you meet people that you love yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. a disaster? I walk into the kitchen and it was everything and more that I'd ever want from someone who was a hero to me. Right. We sat down across from each other, beside, more beside than across because the table was shaped in a round shape. And June puts biscuits on the table, cracks open some milk, <laughs> pats me on the back and says, enjoy yourself and walks away. Yeah. And I sit there just talking completely normally without any pretense, without any celebrity, without anything, yeah. just talking about him, his life, Tenzing, and the summit. And it's so Kiwi, isn't it? It's so Kiwi that one of the most famous people on the planet would be in the white pages. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. And, and it, it's 10 years since he passed, isn't it? I think he passed in 2008. Yeah. And that's one of my life regrets. Mm. So when I came down, my own insecurity... I just thought I'd interrupted him enough, you mm. know, and and I thought that I had already crossed the line, yeah, and I didn't want to do it again, and I didn't send him a photo from the summit, and then he died, and then I wrote this story that I'm telling you in the Sydney Morning Herald, and his family reached out to me oh, to right. say thank you. Is June still with us? Or yes, yeah, yeah. Gosh, now so that that leads me on to my trick six question is. Um, uh, Alex, my producer, has a unrivaled Rolodex. And as long as they're not fictional or dead, we can get anybody on this show. So uh, to wrap up, I'm going to ask you, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Um, uh, I've got two that I wouldn't mind hearing from. Craig McLaughlin. Right. Or, and or, Don Burke. Wow. Because I think you... <laughs> would be an interesting person to sit across from uh, from two people that probably don't want to talk uh, and two people that we should hear from. Consider it done. Todd Townsend, it's been a, a, an honour and a real privilege, mate, to hear your five of my life. Thank you so much. Pleasure. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. <laughs> <laughs>